and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Ron Williams, I am so excited to have you as a She's the Boss Chats guest today, and I can't wait for everyone to hear what you're doing. It's great to be here. Yay! (laughs) And I love doing them in person. I haven't done a lot of them in person. So if anyone's listening, we're actually sitting across the table from each other. So the first thing I think we should ask is what do you do? Can you tell us what it is you do and why? Just a small question. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm the bias specialist. Yes, so that's a bit different. And um, as the bias specialist, I work in the area of unconscious bias. So I speak about unconscious bias. I'm a keynote speaker. I write about unconscious bias. I wrote a book last year and I'm anticipating um, publishing it and launching it at the second half of this year. Do we know what the name's going to be? Yes, it's going to be called What's Your Water? Okay. Because when I first started to uh, research and, you know, really get going with uh, this whole concept, I came across an old Chinese proverb that says a fish is the last one to know what water is. Ah. And that's a beautiful metaphor yeah. for, for a, a unconscious bias. And, and when you say unconscious bias, we're specifically talking around gender here, are we? Or no. no, no. Everything, everything. Now, bias is simply part of the way we think, and I really yep. want to make that clear. One of my goals is to normalise the conversation around bias, to take away any stigma, any guilt or shame or judgment. Right. Because it's unconscious and it happens to every single person on the planet. Right. Regardless of your faith, your culture, your background. But it manifests. Certainly women experience it in terms of gender bias. Older people like me who've been around the sun quite a few times. And me. (laughs) We experience it in terms of assumptions about what we can and can't do at our age and what we know. But then younger people. Also, do that get those assumptions made about them? You know, we categorise people of yeah, yeah, boomer, or you know, those millennials <laughs> yes, on their avocado, true, true. smashed avocado stuff. So, and then of course, there's loads of racial bias. We oh, don't even, I mean, I, I don't know how unconscious that is, or whether a lot of it is more conscious. But well, I think a lot of it is un. It's unconscious in that we learn it unconsciously. Yeah, it's not that our parents or our schools have sat us down and said, you know, those people over there whose skin is different colour to yours, they're bad, nasty, awful people. No one actually says that. No, that's It's true. the implications in the conversations about who we trust, who we don't trust, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there's, you know, there's things around disability oh my as goodness, well. Oh, yeah, you know, I know. Look, like it's... bias is just about categorising people. Yeah, okay. And saying one group's in, one group's out, one group's good. One group's not. And so, of course, the big curly question is what got you into this? Why, you know, why are you doing it? Well, I didn't, um, like most of us who do things that end up being the purpose for our lives, we don't yeah. necessarily go out and set out to find it. But in 2012, I was working with the Salvation Army. Right. I was an ordained minister, so okay. I could marry and do funerals and all of those sorts of things. Right. And um, at that stage, the offshore processing centre on Nauru and Manus Island for um, asylum seekers had just been reopened right. and the Salvation Army approached the federal government to say, could we provide welfare services? Because as people know, the Salvos do great work with marginalised people. Yeah. So they got the initial contract. So an, an email goes around to all staff, volunteers and officers who would be prepared to volunteer four weeks of their time to go to either Nauru or Manus Island to be part of this work. Now, um, I didn't have a burning desire to work with refugees or to work in the tropics because Nauru is 35 kilometres south of the equator. Oh, my Lord. I actually never really thought about how disgusting the weather would be up there as well from my point of view, being a Melbourne girl. You'll ooze all day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But the... I put my hand up because I couldn't think of a reason why not to. So oh, I love beginning your of no, yeah, yeah, beginning of November 2012, I started four weeks on Nauru, and on that very first day, we'd been we'd caught this the red eye out of Brisbane, bumped down into Honiara in the Solomon Islands yeah. to refuel, landed in Nauru, who was about two and hour, two and a bit hours ahead of um, Brisbane um, time was sort of mid morning. Yeah. 
get out and the heat hits you. You can smell <laughs> the jet into fuel. The ground. <laughs> you can smell the ocean because the runway in Nauru is built out into the Pacific Ocean at both ends. Oh, right. Gosh. So, so I've been feel in, like you're landing I've been on in, water. I've been in the beach and the plane has literally been, you're like, I don't know how many metres above me with its wheels down. Oh, my God. When you're in Jamaica, it's exactly the same. I'll never forget, you know, you literally feel like you can reach up and tickle the tummy of the plane. Absolutely, absolutely. So up for like nearly 24 hours by the time we'd gone through the day's orientation and our last thing to do on that first day was to go down into the camp and see where we are going to be working for the next right. four weeks. So, you know, there's a, we're all in little groups. We follow our leader through the chain mink link fence, opened up by the security guards, walked down between like the- Like they're prisoners and dangerous a- or, abs- Absolutely. Know. Through green army tents, there's white gravel because white gravel had been put on the ground. Yeah. So because being tropical, when it rains, the water doesn't um, seep away. It just lands in puddles. So the, okay. the gravel was put on top to try and mitigate that. But, of course- Tropical sun bouncing off white gravel, what does it do? So it gives you sunburnt legs. Right, yes, of so course. All of those sorts of things. So we're walking down and I felt my body reacting. So my stomach was churning, my shoulders were tensing and I didn't understand this. Like I'm in my mid-50s at this yeah. stage, seen quite a bit of life, yep. didn't really understand what was happening because it was very strange. But as I reflected on it over the next few days, I realised that for the first time in my life, my body was actually telling me I was afraid. Right. I'd never been in a position to be physically Why do you think you were afraid? Just because of that environment that you you get put through? Yeah, it was because it was different. Not that these men, and there was 400 men at that stage, that they could physically do anything to me. Like they were asylum seekers. They'd been through trauma. There were security guards everywhere. Oh, no, my heart goes out to them. I guess I was thinking, you know, just the fact that they're behind fences and, you know, you've just got this whole military kind of thing, it kind of implies, again, maybe unconsciously, that there's danger here. Oh, I'm glad you said that. That's the first time anybody's reflected that back to me. I actually hadn't considered that. Oh, what I yeah, so that's that's great. Thank you for that insight oh. because I'm <laughs> going to hang on to that and give that some thought as well. But it does imply that, that yeah. these men are dangerous. But what I could see was I'm white skinned. Yeah. All the, all these men are varying shades of brown and black. I only speak English. Yeah. We had a bit of a joke was if um, if someone who speaks more than one language is called bilingual, what do you call someone who only speaks one language? <laughs> I don't know. What an, do- an Australian. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's all these languages. Um, I, as a Salvation Army officer, I'm in a Christian organisation. That was my faith heritage. I knew most of these men came from... Um, Muslim backgrounds, yeah, and they were from so many different countries. So I started to realise that I'd grown up, I grew up in Sydney in the Sutherland Shire in a very white, monocultural, conservative Bible Belt area right. of Sydney. I'd rarely mixed with anybody who wasn't like me, didn't think like me, didn't look like me, didn't behave like Isn't me. Isn't that funny? Because now, now you live in Melbourne, but I noticed that when I was up on the Gold Coast recently that that is the environment. Yeah. And, of course, when you grow up in Melbourne, you're surrounded by so many different cultures. Well, obviously, if you're in the inner west in Melbourne like yes, we, we are, are, maybe not all parts of Melbourne. but No. Yeah. Yeah, and I realised that somewhere along the line I'd learnt that difference was a threat. Right. And... And that then set me on the path of thinking, well, that's probably the precursor to some sort of racist yeah, bias. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't like that because I would have said I didn't have a racist bone in my body. Mm-hmm. But I realised that unconsciously my upbringing had built racism into me. And that's where I come back to right. that racism is not necessarily overtly taught. It's just something Even we fear absorbed. Of the difference. That's yeah, right. Rather than saying, I mean, I actually was talking to a taxi driver the other day who was from Africa, and I was saying to him, why do they call it racism anyway? It implies that we're different races and we're actually all the human race. We've just got different skin colours, different hair colours, oh. different eye colours. That seems to me to be the difference. It's it's funny that it even comes down and gets called racism. racism. Yeah, well, see, that's and that actually leads into my then my next understanding about yeah. myself. So these were my aha moments. So the first one was that 
unbeknownst to me and shock horror to me, I was racist. Yeah. Second thing was um, in two th- then in 2013 I actually asked the Salvation Army for a permanent appointment right. there because I just felt this was the place I needed to be. So in June of 2013 I go back as the religious liaison officer. So back up to Manus. Ba- back up to Man- Is it Manus or N- Nauru? Nauru, yeah. yeah. Yep. But we were there, the um, situations were similar. And so now I had to look after all the religious needs of the asylum seekers because it was recognised that if you look after their religious needs, that goes a long way to helping their mental health. Yes, I bet. So, you know, so that means Muslims, Christians, uh, um, Protestant Christians, Catholic Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Zoroastrians. Didn't know much about I thought that was just an ancient religion that had died out, but no. No. I've learnt that their sacred book is called Avesta. Right. I learnt so much. But as I started to look at how the white expats on the island were dealing with the Nauruans mm. on their team, because there were lots of Nauruan people had joined the varying Makes teams sense, on the yeah. island, I realised that, um, you know, those of us who are white, came from a developed country, university educated, we had this fairly dismissive way of talking. It's that colonial thing kept it, on coming back, didn't it? It is. You're like, you know, surely we know better than <laughs> oh people who live, live on a little <laughs> tiny island who've only mostly um, got a high school education. And so I sat down with Fatima, who's heading up the Nauruan team for the Salvation Army, yeah. and said, this is what I've noticed. And her words just floored me. She said, oh, we know that about you guys, but we just accept it. Oh, God, isn't that shameful, really? It is shameful. But and that is what people of, of different ethnicities have to put up with. That's right. They it's put horrifying. up with our white privilege. And, of course, I, I like didn't know now, that. I actually. Just, <laughs> that's an awful thing, isn't it, for it someone is. to say? It is an awful thing for someone to say. I mean, it's so say. truthful, but, yeah, anyway. Yeah. I didn't know about white privilege then. Right. I'd never heard about it. Right. But, of course, that started me on a journey. So they were my aha moments for me personally. Right. And out of that... Uh, then left the Salvation Army in 2016. Was that a big wrench? Well, I'd only been involved for about eight or ten years, so it wasn't something only. I'd grown in. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I, so I turned the, the magic 60, turned 60, and I knew that I needed to actually do something now to set me up for my older age. Right. And so, you know, I could now access my super. Not mm-hmm. that there was much of it. <laughs> um, but I figured, okay, now's the time. So I took my super, left the army, went and did house sitting for five, for three years and started. Wow. Gosh, I can't wait to hear this whole a, a story. Business. Right. And, but it wasn't, I wasn't using the term unconscious bias. I was using the term backstory. What okay. of our stories? What were the stories behind the scenes that right. have influenced us? And it was only as I got involved with my business coach and mentor, Jacqueline Nagel, and big shout out to Jack. She is amazing yeah. up there in Brizzy. Um, she helped me see that what I was actually talking about was unconscious bias and that was a concept that people Underst- would, would sort understand. Of, well, sort of understand and not understand it all at yeah, the same time. but it's a terminology yeah. that they understood, whereas backstory I had to keep explaining what that meant, yeah, even though yeah. it came out of the film industry and people understand it in that um, context, but trying to transfer that into life was a bit difficult. Great that you made that change, yeah. I think, because it, because it is different too. A backstory is a story, but it, the unconscious bias immediately makes you realise that it's influencing yes. behaviour as well. That's right. I think That's for right. me the most profound moment when, and it was only a couple of years ago when I really realised what unconscious bias meant was seeing um, a post on LinkedIn from a woman in America who was doing an MBA and she said, look at the reading list. And the reading list was all by white Anglo-Saxon men, like every single one of the authors. And she said, you don't even think about it, but of course, everybody coming out of an MBA therefore thinks that the most intelligent, revered people are white Anglo-Saxon men. And she was like, let me show you an alternative list. And she'd put together a list with women and men and people from different ethnicities, all, you know, still very incredibly credible and um intellectually rigorous, but I just thought, wow, that was the first time that I thought, you don't even think about it. The school books we read, the books we're reading, what we're watching on television, yep. you know, who's the host of this, whoever, you know, it's it's mm. kind of everywhere. It but- is, yeah. And look, certainly with in my own degree, exactly the same thing. And I realised having grown up in 
um, you know, in Christian communities, yeah. the, you know, who were the majority voices? Men. Who's yeah. up there in the pulpit every Sunday giving the sermon? A man. Yeah. And I realised I had been privileging male voices for most of my life because that's what I'd been that's taught right. to that's do. Right. And certainly in my degree, the only female authors that we read, we only read excerpts out of them and it was in like feminist theology or liberation theology or something like that in right. what was considered so, minor or, yeah, you know. Yeah, so not sort of mainstream, not normal, not, yeah. No, it, it's, yeah. It, it, oh, it's such important work that you're doing and I'm so excited to be talking to you about it today. So let's go back and talk to me about this upbringing that you had. Where, what, so you grew up in Sutherland Shire, which yes. I have heard is a bit of a Bible belt up in Absolutely. Sydney. Big family, small family? Um, I'm the eldest of three. Okay. Um, My parents, I think they've got a a lovely love story. Um, Tell me. Yeah. Now, mum was a single child. Both of my parents have passed away now. Right. Um, Mum was a single child. My father was one of two brothers and his um, older brother was six years older than him. So it was almost like Like they were two singles. Yeah. Um, And my... My uncle and his wife didn't have any children, so I grew up with no cousins whatsoever. So we were a very insular family in many ways. Um, The family was hugely important. We never did Saturday sport because Saturday was family day, Sunday was church day. And so even though my sister, who was quite athletic, wanted to join Lithal Athletics and things like that, she wasn't allowed to because Saturday was family day. What does family day mean? Sorry, what do do you mean by that? Just mum and dad and the kids? Just mum and dad and the kids. We would go down to the Royal National Park often and for picnics and, you know, wade in the creeks. And we had a great free childhood, but it... It was just us. Conforming were, to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we were the wow. kids. So even though, like, my mum wanted to be a nurse. Yeah. But her parents couldn't afford to send her to nursing, to school. nursing school. So, of course, she ended up being typist. Right. My dad was in the Second World War. And interestingly, he um, he served in the Admiralty Islands, one of which is Manus Island, which I thought was oh, really wow. interesting. Oh, yeah. Yes. So he was a radar technician, so he was keeping tabs of the plane, so he's in the RAAF. He comes back from the Second World War. He wanted to be a vet, but at by that stage his family had taken in another family who, I don't know, had been displaced or didn't, right. didn't have money. So they then didn't have any money to send Dad off so to university. So the two of them were having to do this kind of second best. Yeah, and he joined the... Which bank? The Commonwealth Bank. Right. And where did my mum work? In the Commonwealth Bank. And they actually met on the train oh, to work. Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that gorgeous? And then mum went, came home. Um, her dad died when she was 18 fr- from an appendix attack or after having his appendix out, you know, just goes to show how far we've come yes. medically. But she told her mum that she'd met this really nice guy but she was sure he would be married because she was 26 and Dad was 29 with us. Oh, they're practically on the shelf, the two of them. Well, they were for that age. I mean, for, for that, that age, age, yeah. yeah Except so the war. I guess the war probably did change. It did. Because it took four years out of everyone's but life, really. That's didn't right. It? That's right. So they got married and um, I came along five years later, which was as, as the eldest, which is quite unusual. Right. Um, you know, mum and dad used to make jokes about, oh, we had fun trying. And <laughs> once we figured out where to put things, we knew we were on the on, knew we were on the right track. But there must have been, at the time, they probably would have been very worried yeah. and upset and why isn't it happening and all the relatives going, what's going on? Oh, and That's right. But mm. I think what they traced it back to was that dad caught malaria in right. in um in the Admiralty Islands and it was either the drugs or the malaria itself that actually impeded his fertility, but it takes about five years for that to get out. And then three came along. And then three came along every two years after that. So there was nothing wrong with the fertility. It's just he had to get that malaria out of of his system. And then what about school? Did you enjoy school? Did you go right the way through to year 12? (laughs) Loved school. Uh, Yeah, I was a nerd before that word was in it. (laughs) 
goody yeah. two shoes, I think it was oh, in those days. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've worn glasses since I was six. So goggles, specs, four eyes, you know, all of those <laughs> things. I was, I was the bright girl in the 1970s. You know, I was teased as being um, Olive from On the Buses, Isn't you know. That, oh, my goodness. Just, but, you know, it, back in those days as well, glasses did mean intelligence. I think now there's... there's or girls, do, <laughs> boys don't make passes at oh, girls who wear glasses. Well, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay, so, um, so you were loving school. Did you go through to year 12? Yes, I did go and through to year 12. And then uni? No. Okay. No, so I... Um, my... Teachers all wanted me to go on to uni, but I'd had enough studying by that stage. But I wanted to be a teacher. I'd been wanting to be a teacher since I was eight. So I went to teacher's college, did my training and went off that way. But I always knew somewhere along the line I'd do a degree. Yeah. And that's what I did that with the Salvation Army in my 50s. And then, Hang on, you've done a massive jump though. Can we yes, talk about sure. what did you do between, say, 22 or whatever yeah. you were then and 50? Yes, well. I mean. Got married. Right. At 21. Right. Gosh, um, 21. I know, baby. And, you know, I used to get told by the other teachers at school, they used to call me Miss Jones because Jones was my uh, maiden name because they thought I was too young to be married. Right. And, you know, of course that's terribly offensive. Another kind of bias. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. You know. And, you just can't and win. Looking young has stood me in good stead as I've aged. Yes. But um, it, it was not a happy place to be when, right. when you're in your 20s. So. 27, I had my first son, um, uh, you know, the, telling all the dark and dreary details. My um, ex-husband, yeah. um, he caught mumps when he was 17 oh, and had a relapse. that can give you fertility problems too. Three weeks it, right. later. So, you know, we had a lot of trouble right. having children. So the fact that we've got three sons is a blessing, but there's four years and seven years between right. our sons. Right. So I so was either trying. pregnant or trying to be pregnant for 14 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so that's a long time. It is a long time. So they were very, very precious babies they and boys. They were precious I mean, not sons. that they're not all for all of us, but I think, you yeah. know, when people have been trying, it makes them even more. It, it did. And um, and I was classed as a geriatric mother oh, at so the age I. of 38 when I had my youngest. I had my first at 35 and oh. my father's an obstetrician. I was geriatric as oh, well. I was sad. like, what the hell? Can you come up with another name? <laughs> I think it's anyone over 30 is oh, geriatric. Yes. Yeah, and I'm sure they probably changed that. I don't think now. they have. Oh, really? Because I've <laughs> no, I think it's so considered many women a medical don't start term in inverted until, commas. Yeah, until yeah of course. You know, so I was completely shocked. I was like, I'm quite young, like I'm, you know. But anyway, there we go. Yes. So, um, so you had the the boys. Did you stay home to look after? Yes, them? I did mostly. Um, yeah. Once I started, wanted to have a family. I stopped work because we were having difficulties. Um, you know, f- me falling pregnant, and I thought, well, if I if I take away the stress of teaching, yep. maybe that will help. And it, and it did. And so, yeah. So I was a part time teacher. Okay. Did some tutoring, things like that, but my husband mostly, um, well, he brought in the full-time income. Right. And was this right the way through till you were 50 and the boys were growing up then? You were doing that sort of part-time. Yeah, And yeah. I'm guessing the Salvos was the voluntary. No, actually no? I didn't join the Salvos until after my divorce. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm, yeah. I'm jumping ahead then. No, that's all right. So let's say what, what happened when you were, so let's say we get to 49. Tell me what yeah. happened then. <laughs> well, in I'll. In the Bible, the, the uh, every fifty years is all well, in very old um, G- Jewish and Hebrew customs. Every fifty years is what they call a jubilee year, where you lie the uh, land lays fallow for right. a year to allow it to recover. But also, if some if a family has become indentured or enslaved to another family, they set free. Right. So it's okay. this sense of freedom for the year. And That's, oh my God, I love hearing that. It's, it's a wonderful because fifty. It does feel like that isn't. Personal age as well. It does. Anyway, go on, tell yeah. me. <laughs> but I I had probably for the last 10, 15 years been really struggling in the marriage. We'd been to marriage counselling. I didn't know what was wrong but I knew that it was dysfunctional and I had no idea how to fix it. But with your Christian background, did that make it very difficult, the oh, idea of it? I mean, it uh, probably didn't even occur to you at first that you could end the marriage. Well, I, it took, I thought about divorce for four years. Wow. And looked at the Bible, looked at verses, you know, because, hello, the only marriage counselling we were given by the minister who married us was don't get divorced. 
And yeah, and for him to say, I remember my dad doing just say yes, darling. <laughs> all those kind of stupid things yeah, that really don't that's help right. at all. So that's right. So it, it was, must have been very traumatic for you then. It was. It was, and it was unfortunately. Um, the thing that was the catalyst was that my husband was unfaithful. Right. And that but it was makes still it a year, easier to yeah, make the- But it was still a year after that because wow. I was still trying to make the marriage work. I was so committed to marriage because that's what a good Christian wife well, does. Well, of course, you're making vows for life at the at that, which of course for those of us that aren't quite so religious go, well, that, you know, I only made those vows because I wanted to get married in a church as opposed yeah. to really thinking yes, it, it through in the same way. it was very deep and personal for yeah. me. And so in the end I really left, still really not knowing why I left, and it took me eight years and interestingly it was while I was on Nauru and we were doing um, communication styles that we looked at, you know, aggressive, being passive, being assertive and being passive-aggressive. And I had long suspected that my ex-husband was passive-aggressive, but when, you know, I read the little paragraph in the in the training about passive aggressive, oh, I thought that was my life. Right, that was the life I had been living for twenty eight years with my wow. ex husband, and um, and I can remember getting on the phone to my dear friend Ruth Lucas. I'll shout out to yeah, Ruth great from, shout out all from these Canberra, great um, who was my confidant for many many years. Oh, can I swear? Yes, of course you oh, can swear. Well, how could he fucking do this to me? You know, yeah, I was just. Oh, right. At the top of my, I wonder if everybody yeah, in the camp yeah. can hear me. I was so angry when I finally realised all what I came to call death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, little things like I was uh, became principal of the little Christian school I'd been teaching at. When we were talking about that over Christmas with his family, his comment was. Oh, Bronwyn only got that by default. There really was nobody else. Right. Yep. So it's, it's all that, that nasty undermining of, kind of all the thing. And when he didn't it, want you to feel good about yourself, no, because that it didn't was make those him, sorts yeah. of things which hurt at the time, but built up. And it took Gosh, me a long time I, to actually. You did twenty-eight years of it. You actually deserve a medal then. <laughs> yes. So, so, so you, that was the, my fiftieth year. I left my husband. God, I bet that he was, was my ju- jubilee year. Was it a fabulous well, moment, or were you terrified? Um, it was the hardest thing I'd, I'd ever done. Um, I'd been talking with a girlfriend during the day, and I had determined that I was going to go home that night and tell my ex that I was leaving him. And I sat across the table like I am here, yeah. and I said, I'm leaving. And when he said, no, I'm sitting here with my hands in my lap, and I said, yes. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. I bet. And did you pack your bags and leave? Well, no. He he decided that he would move out because our youngest son was still at home. Right. The eldest one was Married, the eld- second eldest had left home and was engaged because um, the boys got married quite um, quite young. So there was only the youngest left at home. And so my ex decided to move out, which he did, and I stayed in the house and then things changed and he moved, as, as he moved, Ooh, he moved back in Ooh. to be closer to our son. But then I realised I actually hadn't can't do this, yeah. And so I had to leave and, you know, probably took about two years right. from that first separation to when So you're, you're over divorce. 50, you've just ended um, a marriage that has been such a huge part of your life. Um, I, I mean, and firstly, my can identity. I just say how brave you are because you. a lot of women wouldn't. They would just mm. keep going and be yes. miserable. And I understand is, why women don't course, leave. Of mm. course, I, I, there's absolutely no judgment there. But yeah. um, so, what do you do when you're f- suddenly out in the big bad world as a single woman at 51 with your background, with no money, and basically, no money? You know, um, well, I find myself a cheap little flat, yeah. get a little job, um, and that's when I started to go to the Salvation Army because I couldn't rock up at church and sit on the opposite side of the church to my ex-husband every Right. And, just, and so with church community, you couldn't choose another church well, or him? It was yeah. just this is our community that well, we've there, had forever. Well, there were other churches, like this was in regional New South Wales. Yeah. But I didn't want to get involved with the other churches in the in the town particularly because I knew about them. I knew nothing about the Salvation Army and they ran a little church. Oh, okay. You see? Great. So, yeah, so the Salvation that. Army has a sort of church side to it as well. Yeah, yeah. And so I just rocked up there and hoping to sit in the back row and they just embraced me. Oh. And it was love. It was a really beautiful place to land. 
Oh, fantastic. So you you alluded before to doing degrees and things. Mm. So what happened then? So you joined the, the um, Salvation Army, but what, what else happened? Yeah. Well, I'd found this community yeah. and I'd always, I always thought it would be fantastic to be able to lead a church. I always had real interest in the Bible, had studied the Bible for myself and the opportunity arose for me to train as a Salvation Army officer to become an ordained right. minister. And so I um, I applied and went through the interview. Like I knew nothing about the Salvation Army. <laughs> Absolutely. I knew they had the Red Shield appeal yeah, and that was right. about it. So I, um, I did that and then it got shelved and I thought, oh, look, all right, I'll just wait this out. My middle son got married and then... So this is, oh, I can't remember how many years um, after I initially left my my ex-husband. But in that year, it was the same year as my middle son got married, in the in the August, I was working for I was working for a Curves in Goulburn, so I was right. managing Curves. Yep. So uh, you know, I've done some which gym, is the gym women's work. gym. Yep. Yes, right. Yep. That's right. And I really won. Um, Interestingly, I'd been asked to bring the message at the Salvation Army in, in my little town right. um, on the Sunday and my message was about trusting and obeying. Right. And out of that I was getting this real sense that I needed to leave my job. I'm thinking, how do I do that? Like out of the divorce I'd got, we'd had two homes and the second my ex-husband stayed in the family home with our son and I um, I moved out and, and our eldest son and his family moved into or we in the other house. Right. Um, and the, so they were paying rent, which was helping me pay the um, the mortgage, but it wasn't enough. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Do I do this? And I went to work the next, on the Monday and told my my line manager, who was also a Christian, I said, this is what I'm sensing I need to do. So I have to send a link that afternoon to find out what happens if I quit my job. How soon can I get oh, sent a link benefits? Oh, my goodness. Rock up. On to work on Tuesday, and the owner of the club said, "We know you haven't been happy here. We need to downsize. We're going to give you two weeks' notice." Oh my and goodness. I was overjoyed because I thought, if I get sacked, I can go straight on to Centrelink benefits. Yes, true. <laughs> so, so that Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I get a call from the Salvation Army. How would you feel about starting mid-year training in two weeks' time? Oh my God! Isn't that, so that sorry? Was, I shouldn't use the Lord's name oh, in vain. It's but. fine. Yeah, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and then the Thursday, I I I had been due Isn't for that a all week's just holiday. Meant to be? Absolutely. Yeah. The Thursday, I then get a phone call from the college saying, "When can you come in to sign? Can you come in tomorrow?" And I couldn't. I'd already organised to go and um, visit someone else. So the following Monday, I was in the Salvation Army Training College in Sydney, signing up to do a degree. Wow. Wow. So to do my bachelor in, in theology. Right. And so um and so then you have this experience at Man- Manu Island or Nauru, sorry. Nauru, yeah. Um and you decide that you're going to do something around unconscious bias. Talk to me a little bit about how that's turned into something. Yeah. Well, what I do How's that journey kind of progressed? Yeah, uh, because for me bias is a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't gone into this having studied unconscious bias at university mm-hmm. or, um, you know, having done a certificate for in unconscious there bias. There probably aren't any, are there? I don't think there are no, anyway. but anyway. But, you know, I'm, and I don't have a psychology degree, so it's not as though I'm coming at it from that academic viewpoint. For me it's been an intensely personal journey about addressing my own biases and continuing to address them, continuing to see how my white privilege plays out in every day life. It's horrifying once you start realising it, is. it, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, so that that it's been personal and I've I realised because I'm articulate and I've got this teaching background and I like to be able to share knowledge and I want other people to learn what I've learnt because I see it as a really important social issue. Yeah. So that's where I started. And so, you know, I've moved into consultancies, so I've worked on currently No, but tell working. me, no, but I want Sorry, to, because, yeah. because this is about business, I'm very Absolutely. interested to know how it turned into a source of income for you, how you've actually 
because there'll be a lot of women listening, I think. So there's a lot of women, obviously, who are running businesses, mm. but there's a hell of a lot of women who are thinking about it. Yes. Um, and almost ready to do the jump. And certainly to do that at 50, 60 is, I think, what's going to happen a lot over yes. the next few years. Yeah. So I'm interested mm. into a little bit more of the specifics, specifics. of- sure. Um, did you come up with a business name? How did you make money out of it? And when yeah. did the book come along? Yeah. No, look, that all really good questions. I did obviously, you know, I've got an ABN. So I, I did that even before I left the Salvation Army because okay. I knew where I was going. Yeah. And I registered a business name, which yeah. initially was Backstory Consultancy. Right. So, so those two things were important. I knew I needed to get a, um, a business coach because Great idea. it's important, but I did not have the finances and unfortunately it wasn't until my mum passed away and I got the inheritance right. that I was able to do that. So that's only been in the last three years right. that I've had that, that money. That but that is key and that would be something I'd recommend anybody do if you're thinking of setting up I agree. a business. Get yourself a good coach and ask for recommendations I don't know. Jacqueline and I do not actually know how our paths crossed, but it's one of those serendipitous If things. you go looking, there are coaches, but the only thing yeah. I would say is try and take someone with some experience and try yes. and find out that it's somebody that other people are either recommending or have heard of because there are so many people that also so, kind yes. of get ripped off by it. But I, yeah. I agree. I think having a coach and the other thing is starting to build a bit of a network, a support network around you. It is. It is. And one of the um, key things for me has actually been um, building my profile on LinkedIn and being ah, consistent. I think that's been key for me over the yeah. last few years as well. Go yeah, on. being consistent with your um, either reaching out to make connections mm -hmm. and doing that in as um, polite business-like and professional manner yes. as possible, but also, um, you know, building up your content on mm. LinkedIn so people know what your voice is, what is that you're saying. That is so true. Yeah, and the whole idea of the bias specialist actually came out of COVID when I was doing all those online networking that everyone, yes. <laughs> we were all doing. <laughs> we were. And I had needed to come up with, um, you know, try to explain to people over and over what I was doing. Um and I started to call myself the bias expert and then I realised, well, actually, expert implies that you know everything and I don't. So that's why I started the bias specialist and so I just updated my business name. Right. Um, you know, legally, so that these now my business name. And so what do you do with it now? I mean, are you yep. consulting to big organisations because mm. they bloody well need it? <laughs> well, yeah, interestingly, um, in, in the middle of, of COVID, I picked up my first corporate client in Unilever. Wow, so, not a small one. <laughs> no, no, no. That, you know, like, and again, that Amazing. came out of someone in their finance department who wanted to do some work in unconscious bias, reached out to me on LinkedIn from a recommendation of a, of a connection. Right. So Amazing. that's how that got started. And then, you know, again, and this is where a coach is essential because you tr it's trial and error. It what is. will work? And so, yes, yeah, so now I do consult. I'm currently working with Tennis Australia. Wow. I've worked Great. with government departments. Right. Obviously, work with you know small to medium businesses yeah. as well. But it's and that's you know it has been running, um, you know paid webinars. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, investing into the training in their organisations. So that's that's what I have been doing. March twenty twenty, I was really wanting to get onto the speaking circuit. Uh, as a few people were, yes, and, and of the course universe that, conspired against that. That's right. And so, you know, two years later I'm building that and I did do, did have a paid gig for International Women's Day, which of course oh, was fantastic. Breaking the Bias was our yes. theme this year. So well, it actually wasn't. Now, that's really interesting. Did you know somebody, Jen Donovan in our lunch said to me, you know that breaking, hashtag Breaking the Bias is actually a corporate for-profit business that has gone out with that hashtag. And I said, no, no, that's the one from the mm. UN. And she said, no, no, it isn't. So I went and looked it up and the UN initiative this year was something around sustainability, helping women towards oh, really? sustain well, a sustainable future. And I you thought would not, never they hijacked it. it and they did it very, very they well, did, didn't, didn't they? they? Yes, yes, because I have seen that company breaking the bias, like if you Google it, ah, okay. you can find it um, yeah. quite easily. Wow. Yeah. So that's so this year the focus is on speaking, yep. still doing my consulting, 
Um, Your I book? Also, my book. So, yes, I wrote Which the will book, help with the speaking, of which, course. Yep, will come out of that. Um, I have just last month been accepted as a PhD candidate Ooh, with Charles Sturt University. Congratulations. So I'm going to be exploring the connection between bias and shame through a theological lens. Oh, that's a good topic. Yes. Yeah, so that's the next six years of my life. Right. And God, then, I love it that at this, uh, you know, it, people talk about I wish I was younger because they want to look younger. I just wish I was young because I feel like I've got another 40 years worth of interesting things to, to do. do and you, especially when you're coming into your yourself properly yes post 50 that's right and it's a, it's an amazing part of life but i've also putting together a certification program because Ooh. i know i can't clone myself right i want Perfect. my work to be able to go out into the world yep and i've already got people interested in doing the training so I'm that sure they can you have. then um, oh, it's so it important what you're doing. Mm. I just think it's brilliant. I'm so glad that I met you. Um, okay, now uh, I was going to ask, are there some women who've helped along the way? And you've already named a couple. Are mm-hmm. there any others? The only reason I like to do this is that I feel we're invisible as women yes. a lot of the time. So, but, yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, well, going right back to my early married Yes, um, big shout out to Lorraine McMiles, who may probably never hear this podcast. No, no, they may not. Yeah, but, but that's just, okay. Somebody um, might hear it. That- yeah, she was our pastor's wife, and right. she just took me under her wing as a young married woman, and then as a young mum, oh, and lovely. was really just a, such a grounding um, person in my life. Um, shout out to Tara McGuigan, who's still in the Salvation Army. We have just done the journey together, and Tara is. Um, was born in Sri Lanka right. and um, it's been great. Having a friend who is not white has helped me see the racism yes. that people who are not white experience on a daily basis and I've yeah. seen that through the eyes of my friend. So that right. I hate the fact that she experiences it but it helps me see things that I will never experience for myself. Yeah, which is terribly sad um, but, you know, yeah, if we could, whatever we can do to help those mm. those people um, and our, you know, our fellow humans, then we've yes. got to help them. Um, talk to me about how you juggle work and life when you're working on your, you're living, well, I don't know whether you're still on your own, but you certainly um, are trying to do something that I would think is a passion now. Mm, it is. Um, and very pur- purpose-driven stuff. So I, the, I can't. I, I can't speak very well. The question is coming from the point of view of burnout because there's a lot of women I know who literally will work 12, 16, 18-hour days because they love what they're doing and then after a year or so they don't understand why their adrenal system collapses and they're in bed for a year. So I'm interested to know about that juggle with work Mm. and life and how you balance it. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not on my own. I, oh. I'm in a relatively new relationship. Um, I've been living with my partner for three years. We've known each other for four. So, um, and I say he's my toy boy because he's three years younger than me. <laughs> I have a boyfriend still and somebody said to me the other day, it's really cute you call him boyfriend. And I'm like, I know it makes me feel young, makes him feel young yeah, and it I is know, the I'm right his word. Girlfriend. <laughs> I, I call him my partner. Yeah. But um, he he works in warehousing right. so during and food distribution. So during COVID, he was an essential worker. Right. Which I think helped us stay, both of us yes, stay I'm sane. Sure. So he starts work at six. Mm-hmm. Leaves home at half past five. I get up at half past five. So we are we are early to bed, early to rise. People, I will probably start work before eight o'clock every yeah. morning. He's home at two thirty, and I finish work then. Oh, great! Oh, that's a great balance. Yeah, and so then we, you know, we have our little settling down time when he comes home. We often then go off and do a couple of different things. Come back for dinner, and uh, we have the evening together. Great. And so, weekends as and well. And weekends, I really try to privilege what we do. I rarely do anything. Um, business-wise on the weekend because I have been driven in the past. Like I haven't necessarily had a business in the past, but that doesn't mean you're not driven. No, no. And I don't want to do that anymore. Um, I think and as, I'm again, physically as you, getting a little bit old. But also as that. We, my body's telling me I can't do it. <laughs> but I think also as you get older, you realise the importance of life. It's just Absolutely. as important as work. Very much so. And so and I think what I discovered when I left full-time work was I could get as much done in four hours on my own that yeah. I'd get done in two days in the office. Yes. So I'm actually quite productive. 
That's good. And, the, and I would have to say I'm a bit like you and I know that if I, like if I can get up and start working at six or seven, that two hours that I'll do before eight will probably be the, almost the equivalent of a full day's work. Absolutely. I can chomp through it at that time yes. of the morning. Yeah. Whereas you get me to three o'clock in the afternoon and ask me to do something and it's going to be half-assed or not very good or yeah. not finished because I just lose my complete momentum sort of by mm. mid-afternoon. Yeah, and I find I get on what I call the hamster wheel when I'm tired. You know, that's it. I'll just do one more thing. I'll just do one more thing and I have to pull myself up and go, really actually, your brain, because my, my brain gets into this lock, yes, lock right. step thing. You know, spin, yep. spin, spin, and I go, no, I just need to stop now because I'm I'm no use to the work that I'm doing. I'm no use to myself. No, and no use to my partner when he comes home. Very true. And if there's anything we know when we find partners later in life is how much to cherish that relationship. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we know all the things that we did wrong or they yes. did wrong the first time. Yeah. Okay, here's a great little question apropos of nothing really because it's, it doesn't really belong in business, but mm. is there a quirky fact that most people don't know about you that you'd be up for sharing? Absolutely. I'm Ooh. going to tell you too. Go on. I have two tattoos. Oh, I love it that yes. you're an ex-Christian minister who has tattoos. <laughs> well, I actually got my first tattoo while I was still a Christian minister. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that. You're so yeah, cool. Yeah, so they're both dragonflies. Right. Um, and uh, Why? Well, I'd for many years, um, just going back to an, an old friendship, I found somebody else who liked the poems of Jared Manley Hopkins. Right. And he's an, um, an, an English poet who was also a Jesuit priest. And he's wrote this beautiful poem that starts off as Kingfisher's Cat Fire Dragonflies Draw Flame. And oh. it talks the whole poem, uh, and he has a very unusual way of writing, but the whole poem talks about just being who we are right. and operating. And uses the of, dragonfly as. Uh, well, uh, a whole lot of things. He talks about stones tumbling over the edge of roundy wells, of, right. of bells ringing, um, of, you know, everybody does the thing that they're put on the earth to do. And so dragonflies have then become very special to me and I often have quite a connection with them. I've had them spin round and round me. Oh, I'm terrified of them, but oh, I love them. really? The, I love the images of them, but when yeah. it, when it, one comes in the garden, I normally run screaming oh, inside. I love them. No. So um, I have to ask, if you have had tattoos, did you do them by yourself or did you go with a girlfriend? No, uh, the first one I had on my own. Really? Yes, yes. You so just went into a tattoo parlour? I, ju- I just went into a tattoo parlour. I woke up and knew <laughs> that today you. was the day. <laughs> and the second one I've had, I had with my partner because right. he also has tattoos. He's a Carlton supporter, so he's got Carlton on uh, his insignia chest, on his on chest, his heart. on his heart. <laughs> um, he's got Made in Australia across the back of his neck. <laughs> But he wanted to get his birth year in Roman numerals on one angle and an Australian, like he's a typical white Aussie male. Yeah. And he's got the Australian flag on his other right. angle. So he had those two done and I had the dragonfly. Right. Extra dragonfly done. Oh, so we I went and did that, that lovely together. Okay. And the very last question again is pre- just because I'm obsessed with my phone. So I uh, mm. asked the question whether other people are. Um, do you have useful business apps that you use on your phone that I mightn't have heard of? I'm oh. not looking for email or banking or anything, but no, just no, is there no. anything clever? Let me think. Um, for fun or for business, I don't mind which. Yes, well, I have I have my – I've decided to – there's my partner. But yes, I've great. decided to um, to put all my apps into folders. groups. Yes, yes into I've done folders. that too. So I do like OneNote. Ah, yes. Because I make a lot of – particularly with my PhD, I can, I can open up OneNote – I can use the microphone function and read out the quote from the book that I'm reading. Right. Send it and then the second. And then do you have to have a Mac? Is OneNote a Mac No, thing? no. Well, no, I, I can use it oh, on my. So it's just well, an app. It's a, just you... an app on my, and I, this is an, an Android phone right. that I use. Right. Um, uh, and then I can upload it to Trello. I like, tre- I like Trello boards. Okay. As well. And so I've now got, so for the, I'm reading two books concurrently as I tend to do when I'm studying. Um. So I can upload the OneNote to my Trello list yeah. on my Trello board for my PhD yeah. and I can, you know, I can add that it's um, this particular page and yeah. that sort of thing. So they're, they're the two that I well, they use, are great. use a lot um, and Speedify. Well, what's Speedify? Speedify um, is an app that you use it on your computer mm. so that um, I've got 
um, a USB plug-in that I can then put, you know, a number of other USBs. Oh, well, onto a USB port kind of a U- thing. Yeah. Yep. So I can plug in, and I just I just have a Wi-Fi, um, a mobile Wi-Fi at my house. So I plug my mobile my mobile my Wi-Fi mobile. <laughs> my mobile Wi-Fi into it, and I plug my phone into it. So I have two. Speedify allows you to have two internet sources. So I do USB tethering on my phone, and oh. I. So that you then have a much more stable uh, internet connection, particularly when you want to do things like Zoom. Wow! So I was not—I yeah. was expecting you to go. No, I'm not really into it. I just oh, I love think, technology. I See, know. So do I. Actually, one of the posts I put up on LinkedIn today was about how we so easily categorise people, and that's what bias does. That, yeah, I've and just people done it will to assume you. that because I'm a baby boomer, that I have no interest in technology. My partner is a tech dinosaur. Right. I love technology. Yes, I do too. And I don't buy because it's get so apps. intuitive now. I mean, oh. I'm not really interested in. Uh, computers 20 years ago when they were a black screen with white writing and you had to put ones or coding and ones and zeros. But, you know, apps on your phone, I just find them so intuitive and so incredibly clever. That's right. You know, look, I've got, I've got. What's another one? Go on. Um, uh, you cut video editor. So oh. you can do that. I love using Canva. Oh, I've yes, made my Canva's first amazing. video in Canva. Right. Which I thought was, I didn't know you could do. Use. Neither did I. I'm going to have no. to give it a go now. So that's good. Um, what else do, oh, of course, I love Xero for my accounting. Yes, yes. Um, there's you, a logo maker. Do you use maker. Receipt Bank or Dext for no. your? Oh, here's a new no, app I for you. I use Stripe and PayPal. Okay, well, Dext is, um, it used to be called Receipt Bank. Yeah. And basically all your expenses, you just take a photo of it and upload it and it pushes it into Xero and reconciles it for you. I like that. Yeah, so have a little look at that. Yes, and I use Kajabi for my um, courses. Online courses, and of course, you use Mailchimp, and yes, wow. well, I've got a, I've you... got a remarkable, you know, that the electronic um, notepaper. Oh yes, oh love yes, I'm going to treat myself that. to that one day. Yes, look, that is really worth. I probably use it every day. Yep, because yep. you can and change well, it well, the to people text that and use it, it love it. Really because I love like it. taking notes. But it's one of those weird things where you think, would I use it? Do you, do you know what I mean? I'll, no. I'll always remember an old boss saying to me years ago, why do we need to have email? We've got fax machines. And I was like, yes, and before we had fax machines, people would say, why do we need those? We've got mail. That's like, right. Like it's just making life easier. Mm. So, um, well, great. Look, Bron, it has just been so fabulous talking to you. Can you, you tell everybody what is the best way for people to get hold of you if they'd like to Learn more about what you're doing or maybe invite you in as a guest speaker. Yes. My um, email is info at bronwilliams.com. Right. Fantastic. You can stalk me on LinkedIn. I'm there as Bron Williams, the bias <laughs> And presumably you've got a website at bronwilliams.com I do. I do have well. a website at bronwilliams.com. So, yes, you can go and have a check out all the things that I'm up to. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so, so much for this interview. It's been wonderful. It's been great, Jules. I've had fun. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.